We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Welcome back, listeners, and welcome back, Courtney. Hi. I've been trying to think of a name for our podcast followers. Like, oh, yeah. Like, like health pods or <laughs> podcasts. Or... We'll have to think of it. Um, it's like a big thing for a lot of podcasts and YouTubers yeah. and Twitch streamers. Mm. I could think of some really bad sounding ones, but yeah, we'll have to get Not that too corny, yeah, 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 we'll think about it, but yeah, <laughs> something not too corny, thanks. Yeah. But welcome to the health pod, so let's rebrand as the health yeah, pod. Yeah, nice. yeah, nice. <laughs> uh, so who, who have we got on the podcast this week? So this week we are talking to Charlie Budgen, and uh, she has a really, really interesting story behind an article that was just released by the New England Journal of Medicine. Um very you know up there journal so that's the number one journal in the world for medicine um so we have a, a really great chat with her about her role uh with that paper and all the decisions she had to make and yeah it was really interesting yeah yeah it was a, there was plenty going on wasn't there yeah and i i think we probably should also mention it's about heart disease <laughs> yeah <laughs> but obviously important. The listeners will find out very soon important discovery in heart disease that's basically. right yeah yes. well we won't spoil the uh, surprise for no, anyone. No, no, we shouldn't. <laughs> we'll, we'll let Charlie tell us about her work. Yeah, all right, listen on. I'm really looking forward to this episode. Oh, thanks, yeah, <laughs> that's going to be interesting. Yeah, I feel like I'm going to get a good lesson in stats and also cardiovascular I stuff. I feel like I'm going to learn stuff about cardiovascular disease. And yeah. Really, I should know some stuff already. Yeah. But <laughs> I'm not sure you're going to learn much from me. <laughs> yeah, I think we will. Okay. Um, so do you just want to give people a quick introduction to who you are and what your position is at the moment? All right, so I'm Charlie Budgen. Um, I am currently working at the School of Population and Global Health at UWA, and I am a lecturer slash biostatistician, so I'm kind of teaching undergrad and postgrad biostatistics. Excellent. Why do you decide to go into statistics? It's like a topic that not many people go into. So. It, it's not something in high school you go, I want to be a statistician. Yeah. Um, actually, the story has it is I wanted to be a doctor. Right. Um, and so I didn't get the grades. I was so close, but I thought, you know what, I'm going to go in the back way because, you know, I was confident. Yeah. Um, did basic science to start with because you have to. And then I went into human biology because that was the next part. You have to do that. Hated it. <laughs> Absolutely didn't like it. Yeah. I was like, this isn't really working for me. It's not my thing. It's not something that clicked or anything like that. And I went, all right, that's going to reassess my whole life. Mm -hmm. um, but I was happy to be doing some maths units at the time. So I was like, you know what, just keep going. Just do it. <laughs> I was doing chemistry and maths, and I was like, you know what, I'm just going to have to keep going, do a Bachelor of Science. Ended up doing more stats units and thinking, actually, this clicks. And I really liked it. Mm -hmm. So I was like, kept going with it. And then by honours, I got involved with a medical project um, with the Telethon Institute, actually, oh, with cool. um, yeah, looking at acute lymphoblastic leukemia and relationships there, mm. and I was like, oh, medicine, kind of got there my own way. Yeah, yeah. yeah nice. so I was mm. like, oh, and then I ended up basically getting a job as a medical statistician. So I was like, I guess I got into medicine how I needed to get into <laughs> yeah. it. So it was like a, it was a nice story. And yeah, you, and you've ended up being a doctor. 
Yes, but not the real ones. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Not the one that can treat your like, broken leg yeah, or anything. Yeah. So There's debate about that. Be, yeah. be careful because there'll be some people listening to this who take offence to that. Oh. I believe technically our kind of doctor is the real doctor right. and the others aren't. Sorry, I'm, so, no, I'm, not a med, I'm not a medical doctor, but yeah. I still worked hard to get that doctorate. Yeah. So, you know, it's yeah. still... Still valid, but as my mum says, you know, you're not going to break, treat my broken leg, are you, yeah. or anything like that. What did you do your PhD on? So I did it looking at statistical methodology for modelling long-term disease progression in Alzheimer's disease. Okay. So I worked with um, CSIRO over in Florida. So I was part with them, and then obviously I was at the School of Maths and Stats, and we just looked at different methodology to look at long-term progression because... Basically, they don't really know what kind of happens, and we kind of started with those that were a little bit cognitively impaired and see if we could kind of predict where they were going to go mm. um, based on some basic statistical methodology, really. Okay. That's actually, that actually ties into an episode that we've just recorded that's mm-hmm. either going to come out just before or just after yours with someone who um, deals with dementia, and okay. the legal side of dementia. Oh, wow. So that's interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, and you've recent, fairly recently come back from the UK, is that right? I have. So, um, after my po, um, PhD, I thought um, I should maybe be, go a bit further afield. I'd kind of grown up in Perth, lived in Perth, worked in, wait, everything was at UWA, really. So, I thought maybe I needed to kind of expand things a little bit. So, I, Biostats or Stats is pretty much generic across the world. So, I used that opportunity um, and I got myself a job at the University of Leicester in a cardiovascular science department um, as their uh, medical statistician. Mm. So I took that job and I went and I worked there for almost a year and a half before coming back for my job here. And uh, what what did you take out of that experience? Um, So it was a brilliant experience. Like in terms of um, the research, like I learned a lot about cardiovascular research. It was my first kind of big position it was like wasn't broad range, which is what I'd worked on previously. I'd worked on lots of different areas, but this is now now obviously focused on cardiovascular. Um, but I'm still actually working with some of them at the moment. But um, it was just a really good experience, and kind of I went out on my own. I'd kind of always relied on people when I was here, but it was kind of good for my confidence in some ways that actually maybe I can do my job pretty well. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of good for me in that way in terms of you know what put some faith in your own abilities yeah so was that like directly after your phd did you do any form of other work in between that or so i um after my honors i worked for a while and then i did my phd and then i worked for about six months and i actually worked at the school of population health with Mm -hmm. kevin oh yeah um just working on some bustleton projects kind of i was still working for the center for applied statistics because i worked through there throughout my whole um Mm -hmm. phd as well um so i just kind of was picking up jobs here and there and bits of funding to help out with different things you're talking about the bustleton health study sorry yes the bustleton health study so i was working on individual research projects for Mm -hmm. those and helping out with that and then also doing postgraduate support at the um center for applied statistics um but that was for about six months before I kind of um, picked up the job in the UK. But I, I waited six months to leave. So I got the job and then I stayed here for six months whilst yep. I needed to plan my life yeah. <laughs> moving across the world. So I, I had the pleasure of sharing an office with you. You did. That six you months. did. It was very <laughs> nice. Yeah. I learned a lot about coffee. 
You did. Oh, very yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. It was great. That's and true. other things, obviously. But no, it was, it was Mainly good. coffee. Yeah. <laughs> like, the main part of research. I think important stuff like tea, which is the best part of tea, which ah, is the best cup of tea. Of yes, yeah. we, we had lots yeah. of conversations about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that's um, for another podcast. Yeah, so. Oh, okay. So. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so now you're, you're teaching. Uh, I am. So I'm now teaching. So part uh, teaching a research position. So I'm now teaching, and I teach undergrad biostatistics and postgrad biostatistics. And then also I am providing support for um, postgraduate um, higher degree research students as okay. well. So that so. includes people like us. It does. Yeah. Yeah. It does. Yeah. So that's that's really good and yeah. help and useful to know. Yep. Um, so I've just finished my first block of teaching. My first. Well, I did first semester as well, but this semester was like my intense lecturing everything so I've just finished that which was a great learning experience for me like I enjoyed every minute of it it was stressful Mm -hmm. but I realized I'm like yeah I like this teaching business so it worked really well that's good it's nice to have a bit of variety as well not always crunching numbers you know getting to talk to people yeah definitely and obviously with COVID it makes it a bit difficult to talk to people but we're getting a bit more um, seeing each other and seeing yep. the students on the Zoom was quite nice as well. Face to face. Yeah, and yeah. you get to try and influence students to follow stats as well, which I'm sure is difficult sometimes. Yeah, but, some, yeah. some struggle more than others, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> um, some do a lot more work than others. And that um, it's one of those things that it's it doesn't always come naturally to yeah. people. And so it does take a bit of hard work and effort. Mm. Mm. And so the main reason we've got you on today yeah. <laughs> is that you have uh, quite impressively been involved in a paper that just got published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And I had a quick look at the impact factors. Oh, for the it's top, crazy. Yeah. yeah, for the top journals. So that is the top medical journal in the world. Mm-hmm. Impact factor of about 75. And then the Lancet's the next one at 60, which a lot of people would know mm-hmm. the Lancet. So kudos. Thank you. Yeah, um, well it, was, it was definitely... Um, I guess when I started this, I didn't quite comprehend the, I don't know, the impact this would actually have. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I was, it was a long time ago, but um, I didn't realise how big it was going to be. And then when it was like, New England, except I'm like, oh, huh. right. <laughs> Hang on. And then I, I was like, oh, you know, probably this. And I looked up and I went, oh, that's quite good. Yeah. And it was a bit more of a shock. So, yeah. But I'm very, very fortunate to be involved and very... Um, you know, it's been a lot of work, but it's been worth every penny. Yeah. Not penny. Well, you know what I mean? Yeah. Time and effort. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All so of that. Worth absolutely everything. Yeah. So there's quite a list of authors on the paper. Now, what do you just want to tell us who you were collaborating with, where they were from, and also what your role was? Yeah. Um, so the um, there's a lot of, it was combined um, effort with a Dutch group. Um, and so it originally was a WA study first, and then we collaborated with um, someone knew somebody, and then they got the, um, a Dutch group involved and to bring on more patients. So a lot of those you'll find are um, part of the, it's called the WCN group, um, their clinical trial yeah. place over there. So the unpronounceable names on that list. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, and so Mark Nidorf, who's the um, first author, he's the one I've literally been involved with collaborating with right from the first Lodoco trial. So um, I'd li- we, we like to call it his baby. So this was it was his idea. It was everything to do with him. So I've worked very, very closely throughout the entire time, the design yeah. stage, the analysis stage, the interpretation stage. I've like, worked very closely with him and okay. also Peter, who was the... Um, uh, the Last? senior author, yeah, the end, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of them in between are investigators, like people that recruited a, a lot of people for mm-hmm. the study. And then we've obviously got um, 
the uh, uh, lead investigators that kind of helped design the study as well mm -hmm. type thing. But um, obviously with the Dutch, they actually they recruited more than we did because there's more people there. So there's a few extra Dutch names on there. Okay. But in terms of the Dutch people, I worked closely with Arnold Fialet. Mm -hmm. um, he was the data guy over there that was able to um, do a lot of the translating of their mm -hmm. database because it was actually in Dutch. Oh, that would make it tricky. Oh, wow. So in hindsight, we've realised and actually had a conference with them last night and he goes, out of everything that we've done, the biggest learning curve is if we're going to collaborate internationally, it's done in English. Yep. Yeah. Um, but, it, you know, we learned from that and we, we managed to solve it. But he was my kind of data go-to person if I had any queries with the data set over there. Um, but my role as such was the statistician. Yep. Um, and that as a principal statistician, so I was right at the start. I was involved in the design stage, the power analysis at the start, the stats analysis plan, writing that, um, doing the data analysis, obviously, interpreting the results, providing all the pictures and everything like that. So that was pretty much what I did. Yeah, very good. And just to give people a bit of background, you mentioned Ladoco. Mm -hmm. So do you want to just give a brief history of what that is and how we've ended up where we are now? Yeah. Um, so back, I think he said it was about 15 years ago, um, he started, he got, he got this idea um, about, it's called culture scene. So, and it's referred to Lodoco because it's low dose culture scene. Um, so that was where the, the acronym or the name came from. And researchers love their acronyms. That's what yeah. I Yeah, and it was well. just catchy. Yeah. It was really catchy. So it's like Lodoco. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, he had this um, idea and he has a practice um, here in Perth and he decided he wanted to see what he could do with culture scene because it had been shown to be helpful for anti-inflammatory and that type of thing. So what is culture scene exactly? So culture scene is a, it comes from a plant originally. It's called the crocus plant. Oh, it's written in the paper somewhere. Yeah, the crocus um, plant. Um, yeah, autumn crocus. Yeah, and in basically apparently in ancient times it was to help with inflammation and so um, it gets treated for gout. Um, there's another fever something that's around us, some sort of fever yeah. that I read about, um, and it can help with that. But then previous studies have kind of said maybe it's got some sort of evidence to suggest it could help with, like, plaque buildup um, in terms of infl inflammation, that type of thing. So And, wait, that's not plaque on your teeth, that's plaque no, in your sorry, heart. No, sorry, plaque yeah. in your heart. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yes. Yeah. Um, plaque in your heart. And um, so someone had shown that it could have some sort of positive impact on that, and so he's like, well, I want to try this. So he got his private practice and he recruited patients all on his own own time, own Jeez. money, own everything. Um, I think it was like 532 patients and that was the first Lodoco study and they showed like a massive effect. It was, well, I did the stats on that. So I was involved in that one too. But yeah. I didn't come in at the start of that. I was at the end. So I did the data analysis for that one. Um, but yeah, it was like a 70% reduction in oh, wow. cardiovascular events. So it was massive. So people didn't believe it. So we need to go bigger and better. Yeah. And so that's where Ladoco 2 came. And so Mark's like, I want you involved in this. You've done everything and I've been happy with everything you've done. So you want to be involved right at the start for this? I'm like, yes, please. Yeah, definitely. Not realising at the time where this is going to go <laughs> or how much <laughs> well, of an impact culture scene is going to have. Yeah, yeah. It, it sounds like a great trial. Um, and Ladoco 2 is a, a randomised control trial. Um, do you briefly just want to explain what that is and the, kind of the preparation, I guess, you need to do a randomised control trial? Because it seems like a lot of work. 
Yeah, so um, initially it started in Perth, obviously with um, our patients and a case of they got a grant to do this. So it, it requires money to do these things, you know, a lot of money to recruit these Always patients. Um, and so the idea was to recruit enough people to be able to um, look for an effect of, I think it was like 30% reduction. Um, so you're going to need big numbers to do this. Um, and in terms of um, what, um, hang on, <laughs> big trial, yep. right? Um, so they obviously have to get lots of centres on board to be able to recruit this number of people because you can't do that from one, one, one place. Obviously, there were 500-ish from the first study, so it's going to need to get more people involved. So you have to collaborate with people. But um, Peter Thompson, he's such a great researcher and such a great collaborator that he's obviously got people he works with, so he's helped that way and they recruited that. Um, and then basically recruited patients, asked them if they wanted to be involved in this secondary prevention. They're still going to be getting the same treatment as they were already getting. It's not like they're going to be um, not getting anything else that they need. And it's all private practice. Um, recruited them, seeing if they wanted to be involved. If they did want to be involved, they actually had to go through an um, open label um, tolerant uh, okay. period. So they had to go for a 30-day run-in period. Um, because the internet if they, they were tolerant to this drug because colchicine has been shown to have quite bad tummy upset. Oh, okay. um, problems. So, so yeah. Sort of like Nurofen, which is also an anti-inflammatory. It can do yeah. the same thing, right? Yeah, yeah. especially in high doses, yeah. which would, that's why they went for the low-dose thing here because they're saying that there's enough mm. with the low-dose to be able to do what we need to. But it still can be – people can still be intolerant um, even in low doses. And so um, they had to make sure they were tolerant first. And I think it was about 85 90% were tolerant. So then they said yes, and then they got recruited into the trial – got given their drugs and then every six months they got sent new medication they got uh, they had um, appointments every six months to make sure there's no events and all that type of thing so for the Perth group it's been going for five years oh, okay. and then the Dutch came on board and they had about three years only a year for some people um, but then over there they had to do all the same type of process as well okay. but you know there's all ethics and governance and all of yeah. that behind <laughs> the scenes that has to happen as well. So how did, who was eligible to be participating in the study? So they had to have had a history of um, prior like um, coronary disease, um, but they had to be stable. So it wasn't like people that have just had an MI or heart, um, a myocardial infarction or anything like that. They had to be stable. There wasn't age criteria. You know, there's standard ex um, exclusions like you can't be pregnant. And there were certain drugs that colchicine can actually interact with. So um, they weren't allowed to be in the study, obviously, because that's bad. Um, but basically stable coronary patients um, that were willing to participate. Yeah. And so what, what's the importance of having people who are stable? Um, so I think because it's secondary prevention, they kind of, they've had these events in the past or, or something like that, and they just want to make sure they're not going to have them again. Um, okay. So trying to... Just because, yeah. Yeah, it's like... a safety issue. Perhaps. Yeah. So, for example, people with myocardial infarction, once you have one, you're more likely to have another one anyway. Right. So I think if you go through a period of time where you don't have any events, then that reduces your risk of right. overall. Yeah. So. And, and were these people... You mentioned this is secondary prevention. Uh, were they on other yes. medications? Yes. So they'll often be on... 
beta blockers and aspirin and blood pressure lowering medications. So it's all yeah, there's on a lot of different drugs. So this was like on top of that. So it's not like a um, replacement drug or anywhere like that. It's like on top of the drugs that they're already on standard treatment. Okay. Yeah. Um, some of the people that you didn't include were people that had severe kidney failure. Mm-hmm. I was curious as to why they were excluded. Do you know? No, I, so I actually saw that before when yeah. I was looking at the exclusion criteria. And I, if I look at a closer look at the protocol, I might understand that a bit better. Right. Um, but I'm wondering if renal impairment, I'm wondering if colchicine reacts with yeah, kidneys and um, that type that. of thing. It, yeah, it might also mm. be like... Um, when you take drug, how it goes through your body, yeah. it might not get passed through kidneys as well. Yeah, okay. definitely something oh, that's too. interesting. Yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm not 100 percent sure. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Often <laughs> liver and kidney issues mm. are a bit of a no-no yeah. just because they have to break down. Yeah. Drugs. I know in my stuff, I'm excluding people on dialysis as well. Right. So it seems to be a common heart thing. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Interesting. And so these groups were randomised, weren't they? Yes, so completely randomised, completely blinded. Um, so it was all done with computer generation type random generators, um, that type of thing. And yeah. Basically, come in. What are you going to be? You got your sequence, and you're getting that. And you're getting that. Mm. <laughs> and that's yeah, okay, yeah. It's quite simple that part, really. Yeah, yeah. essentially, they've got the, they've already created their sequence based on whatever methodology they've got. So some um, a pharmacist, I think, developed that. I didn't actually have to do that part. Um, but basically, patient one comes in on the list. You're a one. Go ahead. Obviously, I didn't know who they were at the time. I, no one did except for the pharmacist because <laughs> yeah. it's completely blinded. And basically, the drugs they got, everything was in the same packet. It looked the same. They did everything to be as close as they could, like basically to be the same drug so no one would ever know. Right. Yeah. And I, like, I was looking through the differences between the people who got the, the placebo and the people who actually got the drug. Um a placebo being the control group mm-hmm. where it's, I'm assuming they've just got sugar pills. That's probably what they yeah, got. Yeah, I'm pretty some, sure yeah, it was some sort that. of sugar pill. Um, and I, it was super interesting in, in the study, the number of people that had perceived side effects for both groups was exactly the same and mostly for like tummy troubles, which I just found so interesting because it was like, oh, okay. Yeah. So there has been conversations with like Mark specifically about that. And also yeah. he, um, his wife was a lot involved with helping with the data collection and all that type of thing. And they think for some people it was, I'm going to use that as an excuse because I don't really want to partake. Oh, Okay. All so right. you never know, Fair and it'll, maybe it's like a placebo effect, or I don't know. But yeah, it is interesting that these people that are not having a drug should not have any sort of side effect. Yeah, but in some ways, people just don't want to be involved, or for whatever reason, they might just use something. So they, they did question a few of them, kind of going, "Hang on." Obviously, they didn't know at the time what drug they were on or anything like that. But mm-hmm. it was like we kind of get the one person thing was like, "Oh, I've got a sore leg or something." I can't remember what it was. Oh, okay. and so they're like, "That's got nothing to do with the drug." No. So. Right. I think it's just more in some ways people just want to be polite. Yeah. Mm. And like, you know what, I don't really want to be involved in and, this. And was it around 10% of the people that dropped out or that, that ceased the... Over, in, the in the whole study the overall? The study, yeah. yeah, yeah, it was about um, 85%, 90 uh, stayed in. Yep. Dropped, tolerant, c- remained tolerant to the pro- per protocol, that type of thing. Yeah, it was quite okay. a high number really compared to a lot of other clinical yeah, trials. Yeah, really good, yeah. Yeah. They were, like, obviously being private practice, I think that helps because, especially over here, you know, Mark, it were his patients for some of them. And it's like, 
they they took a, they, a lot of faith in him because you know they're, he's their cardiologist, and so I think that that goes a long way because his personal relationship with all of his all of his patients. Yeah, no, that's really good. Um, so, yeah, so I guess we'll start discussing a bit of the, the nuts and bolts as mm. to what you looked at and how, how you did it. Um, so I, I noticed, uh, let's talk about data management first, because you mentioned there was a few challenges mm. because of the language issues yeah. and, and maybe some other issues. Do you want to just briefly give us a rundown of what happened there? Yeah. So um, when it first started, I sat down with Mark um, about the WA database and we kind of set that up in a way that I knew was going to be usable for myself. Obviously, a few things would need changing and that type of thing, but I met with him regularly and he's like, how do you want this set up? How is it going to be easier? That type of thing. So it was a lot easier to work with the WA database, but um, and it was all um, control. It, it was all uh, sorted and managed by Mark himself and, um, and the secretary where he was, basically scanning electronic records or every week and that type of thing to accumulate all the data and put it all in. And regular, regularly he'd kind of go, is it okay? Is it looking okay? Et cetera, et cetera. Um, the Dutch, on the other hand, have some very, very strict ways they had to do things. So they actually developed an um, electronic beta database because they also had lots of different centres all over the Netherlands and they all needed access to this, comp- this database. So they set up this ECRF, um, an electronic computer. Not sure what the RNF stands for. But um, an, a, a, a computer database where they can go in, click buttons, say what the things are, you know, the mail, clicking it, um, the mail or whatever that is in Dutch. Um, but they set it up to be useful for the nurses that we're going to be putting in this data, not thinking that the person analysing this is going to be Australian and speaks English and doesn't speak Dutch. So um, the first part was once we ha- they had that database set up that had to be set up that way and that type of thing. But when we came to looking at, um, we did the baseline paper. So we're just basically describing the, de- the, the, the cohort. There was no treatment allocation or anything like that. So that was when we first got introduced to actually looking at the two databases and myself having to merge them. And that's when we're like, wow, this is going to take a lot longer than we had anticipated. Um, and there was, I went to the Netherlands because I was obviously living in the UK at the time um, when this was happening. I was actually able to have a couple of trips over to the Netherlands and me and Arnold actually sat down and I was like, I don't know what this means. Can you, you know, we need to translate this. So he coded up a lot of the translations I ran it in, read it, and checked things, and then checked other variables, and because their ECRF has got thousands of variables, like mm. thousands, um, some completely irrelevant, some weren't consistent because one centre would put it in differently to another centre, so we had to go get the actual centre to go and change things because we obviously aren't allowed to change things ourselves. Um, so that was when we first realised it was going to be difficult to merge these two databases together. Um, but we had to do a safety analysis um, like halfway just to make sure it was still safe. So I had to do it all then and there and set it up just for the um, baseline demographics. Um, so that was a challenge to begin with. That wasn't even any really data analysis. It was just summarising the data. But the amount of time that went into getting the two formats to the same was quite difficult because also if they're looking at anticoagulants, they might be looking at specific anticoagulants and then WA might be looking at a different type. And if they're talking about single platelet therapy or something, which was one of them, and then Mark had it recorded, single or dual. So we had to kind of make them consistent and they weren't. Um, So it was challenging, but we got there, (laughs) set it all up. But that meant when it came to actually analysing the data in terms of the statistical analysis, we were prepared. I'd already combined the clinical databases, but then the events files 
trying to merge them, also very difficult <laughs> because they were coded differently. So the codes that Mark used here to say this is a cardiovascular death, this is an MI, this is a stroke, this is a cancer or any of these type of things, they were coded differently in the Dutch. So we had to have someone code the Dutch data as well to be able to kind of get it working and that type of thing. So it was challenging, but we got the merged eventually. That was probably a good few weeks of my life during COVID. Oh, geez. Yeah, that sounds um, tricky. Does um, the Netherlands, so your, your outcome data, mm-hmm. um, obviously separate from your baseline data, did you include hospitalisation data in that? Yeah. So Yeah, so the events data, so the Dutch database had all data, baseline data, events data, whereas Mark had set it up, whereas he had an events file and a clinical database file. Right. But every single event anyone ever had was in this file. Yeah, so I, I, I've heard about the Netherlands set up with hospitalisation data and registries and all that kind of stuff. And I think it took I, Arnold a bit of time to get that sorted. Yeah, no, I, I love it. Like, the amount of data that they've got um, is just crazy and it just seems like such a, a good opportunity to work with their data. Um, but they also use ICD-10 codes, right? Think so. I, I'm assuming so. Yes. Yeah, so I, I didn't have to deal with Oh, okay. Them. So you didn't have to deal it with It was them. already right. kind of coded up as hospitalisation for infection for me. Oh, yes. So yeah, it okay. had been adjudicated right. as, because um, the hospitalisations might not have been adjudicated, because they had to have a team saying that, yes, that's an MI. Ah, yes, that's a cardiovascular okay. death. So you did have to have, there was a committee yeah. that did have to say that's an event and it's that type of an event for every right. single event in the study. So there's so, even like validation of those codes then, so that you'd get the codes in there, then someone would go like, yep, that's the event. Yeah, and then for the primary coded. and yeah. components of the primary analysis, ah, but not like your gout because yeah. it, that was obvious oh, yeah. or you know not like your hospitalization for infection because well it's, it's there. in the system yeah. Yeah. do you want to just give people a bit of a rundown on what the events of interest were i know mm. that you, mm-hmm. it was a combination of things yeah so it was the composite of cardiovascular death myocardial infarction ischemic stroke or um, ischemia driven revascularization so hitting any of those was my primary endpoint Um, So that was the primary analysis. And then secondary endpoints were combinations of those that Mm -hmm. were clinically important. So I think like MI, cardiovascular disease, and ischemic stroke as a whole, excluding REVASC, was then grouped as well. And then all the components separately as well. So MI on its own was there a hit with that, with the two groups and that type of thing. So why would, as your primary endpoint, so I think in context when you're doing randomised control trials, you have to like figure out what your your outcome is going to be first and then you can measure it. Why would you do a composite and not focus on just one of those things or look at them all separately? Um, I think there's a couple of reasons. One would be numbers. Um, otherwise, you know, to try and get um, a hit for cardiovascular disease on its own, you're going to need thousands and thousands and thousands because the numbers are quite low. We've actually, cardiovascular disease has been prevented, sorry, cardiovascular death has been prevented quite well. It's all the events that happen otherwise as well. But um, so there's that. And then also clinically, what's important is whether any of these happen. Right. Um, so we want to prevent, basically, it doesn't matter what it is as long as one of them is prevented. And these are the most important things to prevent. So there's a combination of reasons, I believe. Okay. Yeah, okay. So they decide on what the really serious things are that... You know, basically, that we want, we to, want to prevent yeah. um, mm. as, as that composite. And then it's still important to look at them separately, but you might not have the power to actually mm. look at these things. You know, yeah. if you wanted to do a study specifically for MI 
you're going to need a lot more patients. Mm. We we did get a hit on MI with our numbers, but like ischemic stroke, we didn't that didn't reach statistical significance yeah. because the numbers were so low. Okay. But if you look at them all together, you get a big enough. Yeah. So if you had a thing. cohort of half a million or something, then ischemic stroke might have been something you could have done on its own. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I think like even in my stuff, um, I'll have like thirty thousand people. Wow, that's a lot. And, yeah, it is a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. Yeah. Mm. Um, but even then. Um, I'd be looking at a thousand people that have a stroke, uh, like yeah. as a prior um, comorbidity, prior yeah. disease. And so it's like so small. But... And if I'm right, your data is just administrative data, right? Yes. So you yes, don't yes, have yes. the baseline. No, I don't of... have any of the baseline Cause... information. I'd love that. That'd yeah, be so exciting. Collecting but... those data for thirty thousand people would be quite expensive and yes. you know resource oh, heavy. Oh yeah. yeah, I hate to do a randomized control trial on thirty thousand people. Yeah, yeah. that would be that would be um, your life. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> sorted. That's it done. <laughs> Yeah, so um, with regards to some of the methods, mm-hmm. um, so we've, we've covered randomization. Um, let's take a break here for a second. <laughs> there was something that popped into my head that I, f- that I forgot it's to ask. Forgotten. Um, well, I can ask a question. Yeah. How did you decide on what um, stats to do? So that was kind of already decided before we even started. Okay. In some ways, because we had a plan. You know, we're looking at, we also had the first Lodoco trial. You know, you've got a primary endpoint and we're looking at time to event. Oh, okay. It's pretty obvious what we're going to kind of do. We're going to do a survival analysis. Yeah. So that was kind of already, you're looking at time to an event um, and comparing two groups. So mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's not the most complex of analyses to have to do. Um, obviously, with the sheer amount of data and there's lots of checking data and you've got competing risks as well. So... We so did do what, this. What is competing risks? <laughs> right. So, in terms of um, our primary event, we're looking at cardiovascular death, MI, um, ischemic stroke, and revasc. But then other things can potentially what they call compete with it. And so, if someone had a non-cardiovascular death, like they died in a car crash or something like that, basically they couldn't possibly get that uh, that actual primary event because they've already had. Because they're dead. And they're dead. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> they can't so get heart disease after So basically, dead. it's like, well, we can't know that they're actually going to have that disease or that event because they've already died. So they, it's competing. So those competing risks are the non-cardiovascular death. So should it's what happened kind of afterwards because they're still kind of part of the um, population as mm-hmm. such because they haven't had the event of interest, um, but they're no longer in our study. So it's a way of um, adjusting the analysis for that type of thing because sometimes it would be like, well, the reason you didn't have an MI was because you had a non-cardiovascular death. And I think right. there's a, like, the biggest thing I remember is to do with smoking and Alzheimer's. Oh, okay. So um, smoking and Alzheimer's, there was something that said that if you don't, if you smoke, you're at a decreased risk of having Alzheimer's. Oh, jeez. Because okay. you're more likely to die before you get, before you get the Alzheimer's. Oh. So it, the death competes with that. So that's always yeah. the example I've referred back to. Yeah. Basically, you, the reason it's showing that you're having a reduced risk of Alzheimer's is because, well, you've already died. Yeah, mm. so you're no longer at risk. So you're no longer at risk there. So the competing risk analysis would take that into consideration and it would be like, well, actually, more smokers are dying yep. and so it adjusts the results otherwise. So they, they were dying from some other reason and let's hope they're not dying because they had colchicine. Mm-hmm. Um, and could that be the reason that they didn't have these events because they died of something else? Right. Okay. And hopefully there's no reason they're dying of something else. Like, it's not culture scene doing that or anything it's like just that. Random. Yeah. But we did that and it made no difference. Cool. How, okay. how, just out of interest, how do you do 
that analysis? Um, it's quite easy, actually. So in a standard survival analysis, we have our event and our non-event. Well, there's actually methods that you then just put in a number, another event. Okay. So I've got like, event. yeah, like it's right. like a zero, one, and two. So mm -hmm. my, my non-events, my zeros, for example, my events, my ones, and then I just tell it twos are my competing events. Okay. So there is some very simple methods to do it and yeah. literally just run it. And then it gives you, um, it gives you different types of hazard ratios. It's, they're called, um, fine and gray subdistribution hazards. So it's a bit of a different interpretation. Yeah. Um, but it basically showed that there was nothing. Okay. No, um, no problems. I would assume doing it by hand, though, would be a very different story. Yeah. <laughs> it would be a yeah. lot more complicated. I would never be a statistician if we had to do these things by <laughs> hand still. <laughs> Hi, we hope you're enjoying this episode of The Meaning of Health. Just a quick reminder that you can email us at meaningofhealth@outlook.com or tweet us at healthmeanswhat. And if you have a minute and you've enjoyed listening to this episode or any of the other episodes, it'd be great if you could go and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other people find us. Now back to the show. Yeah, so then that's uh, that. I think that was something that I was thinking of was the non-cardiovascular deaths. Mm -hmm. That the results there suggested that there might be something going on there between the two groups, didn't it? Yeah, so there was a trend in the what I would say the wrong direction because it was saying that my culture scene group or the culture scene group, sorry, um, showed an increased um, rate of non-cardiovascular deaths. So obviously that was concerning, mm -hmm. and that has been concerning um, since the publications come out. Having looked at the data and done the data analysis, I can when you look at the actual specific non-cardiovascular deaths, so it wasn't significant. There was still quite low numbers, but yes, the culture scene were higher. Um, but you look at the individual components or the individual deaths, and they are actually in the appendix, and there's just nothing that screams. It's not like the cancer deaths are more. It's not like the respiratory deaths are more. It's not like your accidental deaths are more. It's just kind of a muddle of them all just showed a bigger hit. But it's something to research further. Yeah. Um, and to look into a bit more detail. But yeah, that's that's been a concern for some people going on increasing non-cardiovascular deaths. When you actually look at them, like there's a drowning or there's a car accident and them and then there's a a, a heart yeah. not heart attack, sorry, because that's non not non <laughs> <laughs> Well done me. But the you know, respiratory or cancer deaths and stuff like that. Yeah. But none of them on their own were a hit. They yeah. they didn't have a difference. Yeah. There's there's no plausible biological connection between yeah. The drug and those deaths, really. No, we, yeah. we, 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 we looked hard and yeah. I'm going to continue to look even further um, and see if there's, you know, just to, just more to put it to bed, yeah. to maybe, say that there's nothing there. Maybe people feel like taking risks more because they feel great because they're... Oh, <laughs> well, who knows? Low risk of a heart attack. Well, that's, that's just right. it. Who knows? <laughs> um, the other thing that I thought was that it's not really a concern, but I guess it's interesting is the fact that there were so few females in the cohort as well. So it was um, mostly male, and that's really interesting when it comes to heart disease because uh, females tend to get more severe heart disease no matter what it is. So was that just by random chance or well, what happened? That was a concern that people have also raised, um, and it's, we've, we've got no reason. It's just that in the practice, it seems that the men are more willing to participate as what the impression I get, the men are willing to participate because there was some I heard from Mark where the wife was like, no, you're not doing that. 
Oh, so okay. it's like the, the 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 men seem to maybe not have as much of a. Eh, it's fine. I'll do it. I'm, See, this is very so very broad. Yeah. So, but maybe the females think about it more, going, "Well, I'm not really sure if this is a good idea," and they really put like a thought process behind it. Yeah, right. Um, that could be completely wrong. But the, the just, interesting thing is like. When you talk about males and females going to see a doctor, it's almost more females go more often than males because they're, they're thinking more about their health and things like that. And a lot of researchers found that. So it's really interesting that it's the other way around in like participating in studies where the well, men are just like, oh, yeah, like, why not? Well, that's, well. that's just me being like, <laughs> that's just my... It, but it makes sense yeah. though, as well. It Like it fits in with the rest of literature. Um Mm. Yeah, I, I can see because you're taking a new drug, you don't know what the interactions are going to be. Like as a female, I I'd think be about like, it more. Concerns, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it was they, they, you know, there was no bias in selection of the patients. Everyone was welcome if they were met the criteria. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I do remember a story of saying that the wife was like, "No, he's not doing that." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I get it. <laughs> and so he goes, "Okay." okay. Yeah. <laughs> Before we get to the main results, mm -hmm. um, there was another. Um, element of the analysis that you guys did, which was on treatment analysis, which was like, a, I guess, a subgroup analysis. Now, what is what is that and why do you do it? Yeah, so we the, the main analysis is intent to treat. So basically how they're intended to treat, be treated, they right up until their last follow-up date, they're on, they're in theory on drug. Regardless of whether they've taken it or not. Regardless of whether they've taken it okay. or not. Um, but then an on-treatment analysis will then give us, we'll find the date that they stopped taking the drug and that's when they are censored. Um, and it's more, it's like a sensitivity analysis to kind of see that, you know, what well, if you're, and that nothing kind of screams different to the intent to treat analysis. Yeah. Um, and there's mm -hmm. no bias in the different groups, that type of thing. Like one group might drop out more. Mm -hmm. And is it the culture scene guys dropping out more? Is that, because that's, that's a bad thing but it showed pretty much no difference. Okay. So, so and because there was, it was quite um, compliant anyway, um, but in yeah. case of, yeah, that it was, you just stop them when they've not taken it, okay. when they've stopped taking their tablets. Just to see if there's any really striking difference. Yeah. Yeah, when you, when you remove those people yeah. that haven't been taking it. Yeah, because yeah. it's, you know, if, if it turns out that we are getting um, more of the culture scene people dropping out, is there a reason they're dropping out because they're on culture scenes that causing other problems? That yeah, thing. discomfort or... Yeah, and then also reaction. the events that happen so after they drop out don't get included either. Okay. So there, there was like a... There's a period, a running a window that we allow like 30 days after they've stopped taking treatment. So any events that happened after 30 days, I think it was, they still get included. But like if they're not on drug after a year... That event wouldn't have been cast in the tolerant, the per protocol analysis type mm. thing. Okay, and w and what was the adherence? Uh, I think it was like eighty five. Oh, that's pretty good. Okay, something like that. Yeah, so we we don't have an exact. Um, yeah. Is it in the paper? I th I'm not sure actually. We don't have an exact like how many people took dr what drugs they took, okay. uh, like an actual number, but like we know just based on conversations that most of them just continued to yeah. take their drugs until they were told not to take and the so drug you, so for whatever reason. So you estimate around 85% continued I, taking I them? I feel like that number might have been the tolerant at the start, actually. Oh, okay. can't remember. But it was there was still very good compliance. Yeah. Yeah, 10.5% um, 10, 10 of the patients permanently discontinued. There you go. So 90%-ish. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. pretty, that is high, isn't it? So, yeah, 90%, yeah, very high. 90 we're in, yeah. That, yeah. That's clear, yeah, pretty good. Yeah, that yeah. is actually very good. I think a lot of drug studies kind of get like the 70-ish percent, and yeah. that's what yeah. normally happens. I think that's a big part of the private practice thing as well. True. You know, um, well, skip, you know, just 
just, ideas. Yeah, just guessing. Yeah. <laughs> just guessing. <laughs> I don't really know. Um, all right. Let, I reckon we should go into the, what the main result is. So okay. yeah. what was the m- main result of this trial and is it good or bad news? <laughs> yeah. um, it was very good news. So basically, in a nutshell, we saw less events in the culture scene group, which is what you want. And so I've got the numbers in front of me. We had 187 events, so any of that composite of those four in the culture scene group and then 264 in the placebo, which basically gives us a 30% or 31% reduction in the events over that five-year period, which is massive mm. for cardiovascular events. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I remember the day, because I obviously did all the analysis, I'd actually coded it all up without a treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, I just had a dummy variable and I had all the code ready to go and then finally the databases were all locked and that type of thing and I got given the codes basically plugged it in and I remember sitting because this is during COVID so I'm sitting there on my own yeah. basically going press the button press the button let's crossed. see what happens and then I was like whoa because I basically the first thing I did was draw a Kaplan Meyer curve yeah. um, and I was like right I think they might be happy with this yeah. <laughs> so it was and I was just like I'm on my own because yeah. I'm like we're in lockdown so exciting I'm going to jail but no, it was um, it was massive, and I I did not expect that. I think to begin with, they were thinking like 80, 90 percent. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, at 0.8, 0.9 uh, hazard ratios, like 10, 20 percent. They thought they might not have hit the 30. Um, and then I was like, hit it, exceeded it, exceeded kept going. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was it was massive, and then the significance in all the secondary endpoints, the composites, it, it, it remained for a lot of them. We just didn't hit with the ischemic stroke right. and, obviously, and cardiovascular death because there wasn't many of them. Yeah. yeah. Um, but lots of the different makeups, it, it showed um, a reduction in those as well. So, mm. yeah. and, and I guess this brings us back to the, the purpose of the randomization is we can say with confidence that these group, two groups are comparable because they haven't been selected based on any personal factors or yeah. anything like that. So you should have a, two fairly similar groups and one group is a 30% Yeah, so basically the reason they didn't have their events is because they're on that drug. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's exciting. Yeah, it was very exciting. Yeah. yeah. Um, was there any other uh, results, I guess, that were interesting to you, like in the subgroups or anything um, like that? Like, was there anything else that stood out? There was, there was, there was, uh, most of the subgroups are pretty consistent trend ways there was one that kind of stood out to be more oh we need to think about that because the dutch didn't have as big an effect as the wa side did oh, okay, which yeah. we no idea why <laughs> it just wasn't as big of an effect as the wa side and so that was the thing that i thought oh, i thought i'd see something a bit consistent across the two but that was the only thing that really was like oh that's a bit but it's you know it is what it is yeah you know it's a study mm. things by chance anything can happen yeah. Um, but other than that, most subgroups behaved really quite nicely and what we expected. And so with armed with all this great information and, you know, promising results, what will clinicians do with this and, and what will the medical pr- profession and, and people, you know, treating health Is problems... everyone going to be on this drug now? Well, they have to have had a heart problem. Oh, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we're not just going to give it you willy-nilly. Yeah. Um, but in terms of the actual drug, it's already readily available. Um, doctors are allowed to prescribe it. It's not on the, I don't know what they call it, it's not a regular drug to be used for heart disease and that type of thing, but they're allowed to, descri- they're allowed to prescribe it off-label if the doctor sees fit. Yeah. Um, so they're allowed to do that, but they are in the process of getting it reg- reg- the TGA. Approved. Yeah. Approved, yeah, approved, basically, yeah. to be a treatment for 
secondary prevention, or sorry, a, a prevention for heart disease and that type of thing for standard. And so I think, and then I think that paves the way for it to be subsidised under the mm. PBS as well. So people who need it can get it either for free or for very yeah. cheap. Well, it's already very cheap. That's right. the other bonus oh, about okay. it. Because it's readily available, it's already on the market. I think it works out to be five cents a tablet. Okay. Oh, that's okay. So yeah. that was another reason why it was such a big effect and big, uh, well, a big impact because it's such a cheap drug. Is it over the counter at the moment? No, no. so it has to be prescribed. Okay. Um, so you have to have a prescribing. You can't just go in and it's not like aspirin or anything like that. And, and what what is it normally prescribed for? Just remind me. Uh, gout. Gout. Okay. Gout. So gout. yeah, inflammation, that type of thing for yeah. gout. So okay. that's a common drug used for that. And and is it is it a logical progression to think that this might then be looked at as a prevention for heart disease in people who've never had a heart condition? Um, to be honest, I wouldn't know. I'm going to go with no because there's nothing wrong. There's no plaque build-up in people that don't have problems, right. I guess. So I don't know if... I, I'm, yeah, I wouldn't say giving someone a, a potentially toxic drug mm. um, would be... I'm not really sure, actually. I don't see... I wouldn't think so with, like, my little knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd probably... I think ethics would have a few issues with that. Yeah, <laughs> you'd, you'd probably need to have some evidence of it. So you, you wouldn't necessarily have the disease, but... Maybe um, some risk factors. Yeah, yeah. blood pressure or yeah. cholesterol or things yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. You'd have to have some sort of reason to be given this drug. Yeah. Yeah. But no, doctors are allowed to prescribe it now yeah, if okay. they wanted to and they saw... They have, there's enough evidence in a few studies that have said it works mm-hmm. so they can do it. Right. This might be out of your scope as well, but do you know how the drug gets rid of plaque in your heart? Do you know how so it works? So basically, I wrote down a little thing. Oh, yes. Um, it, I wrote down that basically says it inhibits several inflammatory pathways known to be important to atherosclerosis. Right. Um, so basically... Which gr- is the plaque build-up. Yeah, the plaque build-up. Um, but in terms of it's, it has a, some sort of response to the cl- crystallization of cholesterol and it can break it down. With okay. something to do with, um, it can, so, oh, here we go. It suppresses the CRP levels independently of aspirin, which that's what that does. But yep. basically, it, yeah, it does something like that. Okay. okay. so I don't know the technical. It sounds like the plaque has to be there and then it breaks down. Yeah. It wouldn't be a prime preventative prevention. type yeah. thing. Yeah. Okay. Whereas aspirin is, has a different purpose, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, they're not saying that this will replace aspirin in any yeah. way whatsoever. Yeah. Which um, some news articles have. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. I've said as, the new aspirin, it's and he no. marks like no. It's in addition Very to these different. things. That's yeah. almost as interesting as the study itself is seeing how it gets uh, interpreted in the mm. media, the headlines <laughs> that it that it produces. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. some people. Um, I when some of the twitters for the New England um, paper, and they're like. They said some really, not horrible things, but I mean like rude things about yeah. gastrointestinal upsets and stuff. And they're like, oh, oh they probably okay. couldn't, they're, they're probably better because they were always on the toilet or something like oh, that. So. Oh, but then you right. get the comments below going, it's low dose, yeah. <laughs> it's not high dose, that type of thing. <laughs> Have you yeah. read the paper? <laughs> yeah, but then there's also scope to like low dose 0.5 milligrams per day. Mm. Some people still can't handle that. Yeah. Um, but, but your they, study got rid of them, so they were excluded. Yeah. So. Yeah, but then there's also scope to start lower. Yeah, and build up tolerance. So um, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure if Mark wants me to tell people this, but he actually tried it. Oh, He's okay, like, if yeah. I'm giving this to my patients, I should try it. Yeah. Right. Um, and basically he couldn't tolerate it oh, okay. at 0.5, okay. but he was able to tolerate it at 0.25 and then build up. 
Okay, so I guess that so could be like a future study. That's the definitely something, yeah. something like that. To look at to the tolerance of people and why some people are and aren't tolerant. That is a future study that we're going to look at. Yeah, awesome. What? So, so that's one future direction. Are there any other future directions for this um, trial? Yep. So there is lots, <laughs> lots to do. Um, so there's lots of information in that data set that we can look at. Um, we've got recurrent events. We've got looking at specific subgroups. So looking at diabetics or looking at specific cancers or um, looking at the non-cardiovascular deaths, like I said. Um, and there's lots of different things that we can do and there's we've got a publications committee type thing together and we've started developing proposals and seeking people that might have some ideas to use and so it's going to be a good few years of work for me. <laughs> good. Um, yeah, so um, I'm keen and there'll be lots of questions. Obviously, I don't have the cardiovascular background in terms of this type of thing, so I'm learning as well, but I wanted to do the non-cardiovascular death thing because I thought that was interesting myself to look into that into a bit more detail. Um, but like being part of the cardiovascular group at Pop Health, um, I was like, it'd be nice to kind of put a scope out there. Has anyone got any ideas of what they might want to do with this data or what they might want to look at with this data as well? Because I can be involved and help them that way and kind of guide things that way. Mm. So, but there's, there's lots of different projects. I think we had a meeting last night and there's already 25 proposals on that list about what we want to look at. Yeah. Okay. So lifetime of work for one trial. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And I, I didn't even anticipate that at the start either. Yeah. I was like, oh, we've done the study and off we go, bye. Yeah. But no, there's so much more because okay. there's so much more data. And the Dutch have different data than we have mm-hmm. as well because they collected a few other things that they had to collect. And, you know, looking into medications as well and that type of thing. So you could look into interactions with other medications. And yeah. That, yeah. So I yeah. think that's on the list as that's well, one great. of the that's types great. of things as well. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So so that part of your life's pretty much sewn up for the next <laughs> yeah. few years. Yeah. Um, is it, are there any other research interests that you're pursuing at the moment or any other collaborations that you've got going on? Yep. So I obviously I want to continue my teaching. That's I've really enjoyed that and I'll continue to do to do that. But that aside, in terms of research, I'm still collaborating with the University of Leicester, Pe- Leicester people. So it was a big project over there that I was involved with, which was the UK Biobank um, cohort where the University of the University of Leicester actually measured what they call telomere lengths on every single individual or as many as they could get type thing and looking at how that relates to um, cardiovascular disease and all these types of things and so I've been involved with that and I'm going to continue to be involved with that I'm actually going to start looking at a project looking at medications and telomere length so I'm working with those still and there's still a few other collaborators over there looking at imaging um, techniques over as well so I'm still going to keep that side of things and then there's the cardiovascular group here and I've already um, developed some nice relationships there um, so yeah, there's a, there's a big lots of things to do in the future for me, and I'm I'm really grateful for the position I've kind of got, and like, yeah, I feel very 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 grateful that yeah. it's all happened. I feel like I don't, I don't know. Sometimes it's a bit like how there's just so much to do. What and you're I'm, feeling is imposter syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. very much do deserve all the. Oh, well, I don't know. I just, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think everyone that works in academia has the feeling that mm-hmm. someone's going to tap them on the shoulder and say the game's like, up. Excuse me, it's, like, like, it's all over. Yeah. We've, we've discovered who you really yeah. are. Yeah, I've just but, like because yeah, I got the job in the UK and I was like, oh okay, that's right. right. I got that, and then I got the job here and I was like, oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I never expected that. Like, yeah. I know that sounds like I should put more faith in myself, even though yeah. that helped. And I was like, right, okay. And then people want to work with me. And like, when like Mark with this project, he was like, I wasn't having anybody else for the Lodoco too. And I was mm. like, that's the Ooh. first you've taught me about that. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah. okay. But I just try and 
do the right thing by everybody and do what I can yeah. to help everybody out. And seems to be working. Seems to yeah. work. Yeah. I think that's very important in so research. Just carry on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. carry on. <laughs> so lots of data analysis to come. But yeah, yeah. fantastic. All right. Well, hopefully, some of the the. New data analysis will also be published in the, the New England Journal of Medical. I don't think that's going to be topped. <laughs> <laughs> um, definitely is a career highlight. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it, it's I'm yeah so early in my career as well. I'm like I, I just yeah. don't know how. I've just been very fortunate with who I've worked with and yeah. like. It's the importance of collaborating. Yeah, you know a lot yeah. of people don't. Um, see that networking, collaborating. Yeah, yeah. And just doing the right yeah. thing by people as yeah. well. Like if you're going to annoy somebody, they're not going to work with you, are they? That's yeah. right. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. And look, there's difficult people out there and, and we all have to yeah. w- learn how to manage that and yeah. deal with that. And some of those difficult people are brilliant people. And yeah. they're in, you know, really high up positions and you, you know, you just have yeah. to work, work your way through it. Yeah, I've had my fair share of difficult people. <laughs> yeah. And you just kind of Brush it off and be yeah. like, yeah. all right, learn from it. Yeah. Well, I don't need to work with you again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a really good yeah. lesson for any young, aspiring researchers yep. out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even some older ones that are aspiring. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. I'm getting yeah. old too now. <laughs> <laughs> Far from it. Well, uh, unless there's anything else, uh, yeah, I think we should wrap up. And yeah, yeah thanks very much for taking oh, the time for today. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Very interesting and paper and can, look forward to seeing your future stuff. Yeah, and yeah. you can put appearing on the Meaning of Health podcast up next to the New, New England Journal okay. of Medicine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Definitely like yeah. career highlight number one and podcast number yeah. two. Yeah. <laughs> well, this will be my second thing I share on on, um, on Twitter. Oh, very I shared nice. The new, I, yeah. I, I, I've never been into the Twitter thing. I never yeah. understood it. And I was like, oh, share that paper. This one, yeah. This will be my second thing I share nice. when you guys Love post it. that thing. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. All right. Thanks very All much. Right. Thank, Thank you. you. So that was our conversation with Charlie Budgeon. Did you enjoy that, Courtney? <laughs> I really wanted to say no then because I thought it would be funny, but no, it was a really good conversation. Um, we definitely learned a lot. I think it's, it's fantastic work by her to to get up there, particularly early on in her career. Um, yeah, super interesting learning about the, the drug and how it works with anti-inflammatory things and all that kind of stuff so yeah super enjoyable i thought a really interesting part of our conversation was charlie's journey through the process Mm. she's been involved with this project for a long time from its really early days and how she was re-approached to be part of the the second study yeah Um, and it just highlights the importance of relationships and oh absolutely well with people and also i love the fact that the the main guy was just like he, he just wanted to do it so he did and, and then recruited all these people around him that obviously ended up in such a, a good study. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's the way to do it, right? <laughs> it is. And the other thing that struck me was hearing Charlie talk about how her confidence has grown. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people who go into research think that they don't know anything and they think their skills are not as good as everyone else's. Yeah, but and, in reality, yeah. like, you, Clearly you don't realise. Clearly great. Yeah. And, you know, she's getting places quickly now, so... Yeah, that was really inspiring. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Anyway, um, how can people get in touch with us? All right. So you can contact us on Twitter at health means what. Um, so please do with all of your ideas. And if there's people you want us to interview as well, that would be awesome. Um, we also have an email, which is the meaning of health at outlook.com. 
I think it's just meaningofhealth.com. Oh, so close. So very close. You know, yeah. it's been a year. I really <laughs> should know. Um, but yeah, also email through your ideas or comments or feedback or anything like that would be great. Yeah, and we look forward to speaking to you all very soon. Okay. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming.